You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So I was raised in a multicultural, multilingual household in Karachi, Pakistan, and my family used to move a lot. So we, I, I happen to have the privilege of experiencing living in different countries before settling in Las Vegas in the U.S. Uh, so when I lived in Dubai, I noticed that the residents lived a very fast-paced life. And so the entire city was built around quick and accessible services. And then I, I lived there for a little bit. And before then, I, I moved to London. And then the reliability of the buses and the underground tubes was impeccable. So there was all these places that really helped shape who I am today. It's really by seeing how governments operate in all these different countries and, and how much government is part of our daily lives. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. But that isn't true for our guest today because all the great things she did as CIO for Las Vegas' Clark County, Nevada, has gotten global recognition. Nadia Hansen, the now former Chief Information Officer for Clark County, which is an $8 billion public enterprise in the U.S.'s 11th largest county, just recently left her role as CIO to take on a new global role with Salesforce, where she will support other regional and local governments around the world do exactly what she did for her constituents. But her role was very unique because while she served just over 2.3 million citizens in her county, she was also responsible for supporting the more than 45.6 million visitors that arrived each year. As the leader of the IT function at Clark County, Nadia supported the delivery of information technologies to 10,000 employees across 140 plus locations. Interestingly enough, she took over the job right before the pandemic struck and the county wrestled with a more than $1 billion deficit when revenue from resorts and gaming dried up. Like counterparts across the country, the county had to navigate the launch into remote work. Handling this shift required a mix of new technology and new management approaches. Today, we're going to talk about what that shift looked like for her and the team and how she feels the experience she gained in the CIO role can really translate into supporting global communities. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Brian. It's great to be here. And congratulations on your time in in Clark County. I've actually wanted to have you on the show for a little while, but I think the timing was really fortuitous because you're going to be moving into a new role where you're going to be looking to help uh, global, regional, and local governments, which I think is really exciting. And I, my role is global, so I know the value uh, that you can bring and the scale that you can bring so that it must be so exciting for you to to be able to bring that your background into that space. It definitely is. Um, Brian, I've been in the public sector space, you know, for about 15 years now. I have worked as an employee. I've worked as a vendor. I've worked as a consultant. And for some reason, <laughs> I'm always attracted to all of these amazing opportunities where you can help make a difference and make a dent you know, and actually what we're doing to serve the community. So it's uh, it's been a privilege to serve as CIO, and I'm looking forward to making and helping make a global impact. It seems like a really common trait that I've, I've noticed for, for a lot of leaders in government, they have that call to public service. So um, I can definitely understand that. As, as you look back at your time at Clark County and 
obviously it was just about a week ago that you were still in your seat, but what are some of the things you're most proud of um, as CIO during that time? Brian, I am proud of so many things. This is one of those hardest questions. It's kind of like, you know, when you have your baby, it's like, what are the things that your baby does that make you so happy, right? So <laughs> I can't quite limit that, but I'll try to. Um, so just to set the context, uh, Clark County, for those who don't know, it's located in Las Vegas. It's home to more than 2.4 million people. And with the world famous Las Vegas Strip and the stunning state parks that we've got, we attract about 45 million visitors every year. And Clark County itself is an $8 billion enterprise with a B uh, with 10,000 employees across 140 different locations. So our footprint in Southern Nevada is quite large. Um, and, and honestly, the world is completely changing around us. <laughs> so if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's that the past is gone and we're creating this new future. And there are many things that we learned in our digital reality, which we're going to keep which includes reimagining services for not just our employees, but also for our constituents. And, and that includes initiatives like having a hybrid work environment, which, you know, a lot of government entities are still struggling with trying to figure out what does the future of work look like. Uh, it includes us pivoting to paperless transactions. We were already on this journey pre-COVID, but now, you know, COVID has kind of acted as a catalyst for us to be able to leverage you know, some of these uh, amazing opportunities for us to be able to move forward fast. Uh, online payments, we're talking about uh, pivoting to electronic signatures. Um, I'll give you a very quick example of electronic signatures. We used to do performance evaluations, invoices, uh, even with some constituent facing services. We'd have paper forms online that people would have to print out, then they would have to mail it, they would have to put a stamp on it, then they would have to like, you know, all of this stuff that would take days, and then they would have to send it to Clark County, and then Clark County would have to take that piece of paper and then run it up different floors into different departments. So all of that process would take, let's say, like about six to eight weeks, depending on the process that we're looking at. We were able to cut down, and this is one thing I'm very proud of, we were able to cut down on paper and completely digitize those processes and bring it down to a matter of hours. And that, I think, from a community perspective, from an employee perspective, was so well adopted and absorbed that this is one of those things that I'm super proud of, that the team was able to make happen and really kind of help with some of our climate and sustainability initiatives and just kind of making it more human centric and easily accessible. I think those are some of the things that I'm very proud of. I think, I mean, that, that's really impressive. And especially when, when I think of paperless government, one of the first uh, areas I think about is actually outside of the U.S. Um, in Dubai, they have a massive mm -hmm. paperless government initiative. Um, and I know you have lived in a lot of different places around the world. You were originally born in Pakistan, but you've you've moved around. How much has that travel and, and living in different parts of the world really enabled how you made some of these changes as CIO and also prior to that in your career? Yeah, so it's a great question. Like, I love Dubai, by the way. I love their smart city initiatives. Mm -hmm. I know they're trying to go paperless. I want to say it was like by the end of this year, but maybe end of this year, yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's what they're doing is actually setting the stage for a lot of different countries. Um, but I did live in Dubai for a little bit, and that really shaped who I am today because I just felt that they're like a 
kind of like a mini New York or a mini America in some respect, and they're doing so many great things. Um, I lived in London for a little bit, and and honestly, in every place that I've lived in, I kind of got to realize that you, without really um, like government is kind of part of our daily lives, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. the roads we drive on, the water that we use, like you know, the taxes that we don't like to pay, but we pay. All of those things are really involved. And so how do we make this like easily accessible to people? And I think that was kind of the driver of being in government, and especially local government. We're really truly reshaping and helping our community. And you get to see that immediately. Um, so I think that's part of like the, the transformational journey, which always attracted me to government. And it's funny because when I first started, I, I always used to say, you know, I'm not here. Where, I mean, the government, you know, local government has amazing perks, don't get me wrong, but I'm not here to collect a paycheck. I'm not here to collect retirement. I'm here to make a difference. And so let's go on this journey together. And it's really kind of been that driver that sort of helps with how can we be 1% better? <laughs> I think that's the motto. I love that. And if I could recommend a book for you, I, I just finished it and um, it's called The Raging 2020s. It's by a guy named Alec Ross and a little bit of a plug. He's uh, he's going to be the next episode of our podcast. So for those listening, you'll be able to hear me speak to him. But he talks about the the way that governments and companies are so intertwined in our lives and kind of how it's um, changed the social contract that we have and how we interact with things. And it's like you said, um, the, the government is such a part of our daily lives, whether we know it or not, and the data that the government has and how it's leveraged by companies to um, enable some of the applications that we use on a daily basis, just checking our weather, things like that comes from, from government data. So I think you're absolutely right. And as we look at kind of what you were driving towards, I know as we, as we were talking prior to, to this interview, um, we were talking about how you have these projects that you love and you work on and, and you just want to see them all the way to the end, but sometimes you can't do that. But um, you've obviously been working on things that are long-term investments into Clark County. What are some of the things you're you're hoping to see come to fruition and be addressed over the next few years as that um, new person comes into the role? Yeah. So, you know, the, the first thing that I did when I started at the county, which was about three years ago, uh, we developed a strategic roadmap that's available on the Clark County website. You know, you just Google it, Clark County Strategic Roadmap, and it'll come up. And that really lays out our 10 commitments, you know, our, our time plan and, and what do we plan to do and how do we plan to take it to the next level. And uh, for us to truly reshape our services, our next step, and when I say ours, like my former next step, whoever's going to be in that position that I vacated, is really going to be allow our constituents a choice to receive personalized services. And what I mean by that um, is that if I am a small business owner, as an example, and I want to get my business license, and I want to make sure I'm zoned properly, and I perhaps need to get a permit, and oh, by the way, I need to also pay my property taxes, I should not have to go through five different portals or five different processes to be able to achieve this one business outcome, right? So the theme of identity access management or a digital wallet is really the next game-changing step for us. And so data, data analytics, and having a data governance strategy is at the core of personalization of services. 
So those are some of the things I'm really looking forward to seeing. And now that I'm a resident, <laughs> I'm not an employee anymore, but I'm a resident of Clark County. You know, I, I want to see an auto magical experience when I interact with my local government. And so from a strategic perspective, Clark County is heavily focused on establishing, you know, uh, as, a, as a progressive, innovative organization and, you know, we are serving, and every local jurisdiction is too, we're serving five different generations, you know, between the 10,000 employees and the 2.4 million residents. We're talking about traditionalists, we're talking about baby boomers, the Gen Xs, the millennials, and pretty soon the Gen Zs. So every generation wants to be served differently. You know, we have the brick and mortar buildings, which is fantastic, uh, but some services, you know, people would just want to be able to access through a couple of clicks on the phone or some prefer mail or some prefer phone services. So the key here is, you know, I'm really looking forward to seeing this personalization, this easy accessibility of services, just like Amazon or Uber or the Airbnbs of the world. Like, why should government be any different? So I love that you brought up serving different different generations because I think you're absolutely right. Is have you seen that shift, um, obviously away from some of the the older generations into some of the the service um, engagement that you do on the 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 more digital side, whether it's mobile or, or desktop app or website applications. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you an example. Uh, we at the treasurer's office, you have to pay like quarterly property taxes. We used to see a line that would like be around the building <laughs> pre-pandemic <laughs> right which would go around and people had to stand in line to be able to pay their taxes because some people just wanted to pay cash and whatever whatever that mode might be of payment i have noticed that post-pandemic because we have you know put some of those services online and made it available through mobile that the line has been cut like maybe in a quarter now and there's just people who have that familiarity maybe it's a little bit of the older demographic who just still want to come in and talk to a human and i think the point is having the choice is important having the ability to be able to choose to say yeah i just don't want to walk into a brick and mortar building can i just pay this online be done with it Absolutely. Like, I think we need to be a government of choice and be able to provide different services to different people, whether they choose to come in person or they choose to do it online or they choose to do it to mobile. We were, my wife and I were driving the other day and I saw a line around the backside of the DMV as we're driving on a highway. <laughs> and, and I told her, I, I almost want to stop and get, get off and go over here and take a picture of this because it's, it seems unprecedented that even even in a kind of a post pandemic world that we're living in that that many people would show up to the DMV to right. facilitate uh, just getting a driver's license whatever they're, whatever they're doing it was just it was jarring to me yeah you know what it's funny you say that too because um, I notice I still notice that I think there's maybe a level of comfort too to be able to say I I, I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing gets processed and I get to see a human. It's, you can't take away the human centric experience. All right. Like, yes, it's a digital first world and I'm all for it. But at the same time, there's like a human component where we feel good as social creatures to be able to talk to another human. You can't yeah. take that away. You know, that's very true. So, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about the pandemic a little bit. You started your role as CIO kind of right before the pandemic kicked off. What are some of the things that you learned during the pandemic that that you're going to bring with you to your your next role? You know, I wish there was a playbook <laughs> yeah, for how to manage that. a crisis, especially if it's a pandemic, but there wasn't one. And I think it really taught us actually quite a few things. It really taught us that it's great to have a strategy, 
but it's all in the execution. It taught us that when you have a talented team who wants to drive business outcomes and make a dent in the community, that's what needed. That's what needed in a time of crisis. You know, so I, I uh, always talk about the tour of duty concept. And the tour of duty to me means, you know, we need people to come into and help government work on challenges. And then you, you are welcome to stay here if you want for a long time or you're welcome to leave. Right. But the point is, you want this fresh experience for people to come in and kind of help solve these really tough challenges. And I think one of the biggest things I have seen uh, that I will take into my next role is really the, the culture, the mindset. And, and the people. It's really all about the people. Everything is like, I think technology is a great enabler to help accelerate and help transform. But it really comes down to like, how do you build trust with people? And I think trust is like the keyword here that, you know, I kind of whether whatever we were trying to do, I think it was really important that the departments, the employees, our constituents have that level of transparency where they know where we're headed and why we're doing what we're doing and kind of have that trust built into the process. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you brought up that it's about the people. I think one of the things that we saw in all governments around the world during the pandemic was technology adoption was at a, a skyrocketing rate, whether it's both internal and external, because you didn't really have any alternative, right? So right. If, if you're if you're an organization and you need to facilitate remote work and you throw out Zoom or Teams or whatever, there there couldn't be any resistance to using any of this stuff or the learning curve had to be really quick because it's the only way you could do your do your job. Same with the the external side of things, deployment of of services, it all had to go to digital. So citizens, whether they wanted to use digital means or not, had to to do some of these things. But I'm curious as a CIO, when you look at how your let's call them stakeholders both internal and external how your stakeholders adopt technology what are some of the things you're looking to do to drive that adoption up in a in a situation where it isn't as draconian as the pandemic was yeah i i think adoption comes with um other than having a strategy it's really empowering people Right. And so when I'm talking about empowering people, I'll give you an example of, you know, everybody was so used to having a desktop and everybody was so used to just the used to is the keyword here. <laughs> like I'm <am> comfortable <laughs> with what I do yeah. and I don't really know what the future looks like. So I kind of really don't want to change. But I think rather than saying you are going to, I think it's kind of co-creating, right? You're co-creating with your departments, you're co-creating with your constituents, you're co-creating with your employees. So it's really empowering staff. And I think just them having to see, well, like maybe laptops and tablets and I can be mobile out in the field and I can actually result inspections or do case management or, you know, be able to process license applications from out in the field or for wherever I am. It's a real game changer. And I think kind of having that freedom to be able to continue to do work and provide mission critical services from anywhere, I think that was a huge um, adoption factor for us. I'll give you another example. We were fighting, we as in like the, the IT department, we were fighting for people to use some of these online collaboration tools like Zoom, like WebEx, like Teams, <laughs> pre-pandemic. We had already deployed all of these tools and we're like, you know what, this would just make so much more sense for you to collaborate. You don't have to have a physical body sitting in the office unless you need them to but they can be able to communicate from anywhere. And it was so funny because right after the pandemic, we already had all of this stuff. 
and the adoption rate skyrocketed by like 90%. And it was so amazing to see that people who were suspicious of the cloud and people who were concerned about you know, security and people who didn't have a huge appetite for remote working, now that was just all acceptable and it just made sense and people could get more of it. So I feel like all of these things just kind of came together at the right time. But it's really kind of showing what a huge opportunity it is and making lives easier, right? Whether it's employees or our constituents with mobile devices and just being mobile and automation. I think that was the biggest thing for us. It's amazing what necessity can do, right? Yes. <laughs> so it, let me ask you this then. Um, now that you've exited the public sector into the private sector, what can private sector organizations do to help governments drive that adoption of the technology? If, if you're working with, with Microsoft and you're trying to deploy teams and the adoption rate just isn't as high as you want it to pre-pandemic, like you mentioned, what can a private sector partner do to support you as the CIO in that role to help drive that adoption? Yeah. If I so one of the things that I always looked at is I look towards peer recommendations. I looked at my other peers. So we would always look at bigger counties like LA County, Maricopa County, bigger than us, as to what they are doing and what are the lessons that they learned that we can employ to be better or learn ourselves. And so I feel there's an awareness um, concept that when you get the social proof <laughs> from somebody else who's maybe done something that you haven't or they're about to, I think that counts massively in local government sector because you're like, okay, you know, I haven't done this before. I'm about to make this huge transition or I'm ab about to transform. I need a little bit of a confidence, whether it's through roundtables, whether it's through podcasts like this, Brian, whether it's through people who've actually done the job or about to do the job. If I can talk to them and kind of figure out what is it that worked for them and what didn't, I think that is massive. And so for the private sector perspective, it's that awareness. It's kind of having those roundtable conversations. It's having those like feeling of like trusted small group curated um, dialogues that would really help, I think, in terms of um, being able to talk to other CIOs who may be in the West Coast region or if somebody is trying to do it nationally in the national region. I think having those conversations to build that comfort factor is so important. Well, I think in terms of looking to your peers for, I guess, a, a way forward, um, it'd be hard to find somebody who had a much larger budget deficit than you guys did yeah. uh, during the pandemic, because I think you are so reliant or, or Clark County is so reliant on the the gaming revenue that comes in from tourism, et cetera. And a lot of that just came to a screeching halt when the pandemic kicked off. And a lot of leaders all over the country had these challenges. Obviously, yours is a massive scale. But how did you deal with that budget deficit to to still make sure that you were able to support all your stakeholders, um, even despite of it? Yeah, that was one of the most challenging times for us. Uh, so when the shutdown happened, you know, like you mentioned, we are a resort and gaming town. And so our revenues come from all the resorts and gaming. If there aren't any people coming in, that means there's no revenues coming into the county. And so we were at a one billion with a B dollar deficit for the year. Uh, we had to put a hiring freeze. So we stopped hiring people just across the county. As you can imagine, just for my technology department, we were at a 20 percent standstill uh, that we couldn't hire new people and then we had a lot of people retire out of that because they just realized you know a lot of people had this 
had this awakening where, you know, what am I doing with my life and where do I want to be? So I think there was multiple things that were happening at that time where people were kind of realizing, you know, what their future should look like and what do they want to do in their lives that and everybody kind of had that sense of, you know, it's a, it's a short life and we got to live our lives the way we want to. So I think there was multiple things happening uh, for us we were able to navigate the budget deficit by uh, leveraging some of the COVID care funding uh, through the federal funds that we were able to receive. And I think that really helped beef up our infrastructure. I mean, we were able to support remote work. We were able to leverage, you know, some of this digital acceleration. We revamped our website that basically helped people, you know, come to an easy intuitive portal because we were, you know, helping with vaccine uh, rollout locations. We were helping just internally employees on the health and safety side, just kind of help people getting vaccinated. So there were so many things that were happening at the time, but it really helped us uh, by getting some of that COVID care funding. And now the American Rescue Plan Act funds, uh, which will, uh, you know, push some of the broadband and cybersecurity initiatives forward, we kind of have been really leveraging some of those funds to be able to accelerate. So, so that's a good point. I mean, we've, we've talked about the, the amount and the scale that you've had to support and obviously tourism and gaming and, and resorts were a big part of that revenue. But with that comes uh, a wide range of demographics, right? And yeah. you're not only supporting the close to two and a half million citizens that you have in Clark County, but the close to 45, 46 million dollar or million tourists that come in, the visitors that come in. What's it like to support such a wide range of, of stakeholders. I have to tell you, Brian, this has been one of the best jobs that I've ever had in my life. And I say that because between the needs of our communities, so we have seven different commissioners, which means seven different districts. And also you mentioned like the tourists, we're trying to really cater to all of these different audiences. Uh, it can't be done in a silo and it can be done without amazing partners. So we were very fortunate to have very good vendor partners who helped us uh, transform the services. And what I mean by that is, uh, I'll just give you a recent example. We employed a design company called IDEO. Uh, they're known for their human-centric design, and they're the ones who helped us a lot with uh, doing workshops with our resident community, putting out a little bit more of a, you know, we're setting up focus groups and how can we do better, whether that's on the rental assistance side, when people were losing their jobs and it needed assistance, or people are just coming in to find out a little bit more about what's going to happen next in terms of me wanting to get hired or um, just trying to get access to our services, whether they're paying for property taxes or their licenses or trying to get a building permit and just get on with their lives. So I think it's really kind of making sure that we're involving our community and what we're doing. And we do a lot of community engagement exercises. And so that's kind of like how we're able to navigate not just our residents, but also our tourists. We have a lot of tourists who come in for film permits. We are the marriage capital of the world. Like we have people who come <laughs> in all the time you know, to get a marriage license. I'm not going to talk about divorce, but we're famous for that too. So, you know, drive through divorces, marriage licenses, like we have all of this action happening. And it's funny because I think the theme that you kind of touched on earlier, like I've always been attracted to all these tourist destinations, Dubai, huge tourist destination, London, huge tourist destination, Las Vegas, huge tourist destination. So there's a lot of action and activity happening and it's so great to be part of it. When I think of supporting tourism in, in the, the cities you just mentioned, one of the things that also pops into my head is kind of smart city initiatives yeah. and being able to, from a infrastructure, but also a brick and mortar perspective, be able to serve the, um, the citizens and the tourists um, from that vantage point. 
what kind of evolution has been made within Las Vegas, but also all of Clark County uh, around um, around IoT and making it a, a smarter community? You know, so um, just being in Las Vegas, you're kind of in the hub of all the entertainment and action happening, and this is the best place to brand. So, for instance, uh, autonomous vehicles like we have, yeah, uh, one that actually goes on the strip, and you know, people can actually sit in it and go from one corner to the other. Like, I think we we are trying to really establish ourselves as an innovation hub. I mean, a lot of people right now, just post COVID, are with the work from anywhere movement. You know, people from California and there's people who are transitioning from places where they used to be and now they don't have to be near headquarters anywhere. We've seen a lot of growth and movement and people coming to Las Vegas or Austin or Florida. I mean, our real estate market, if you look at it right now, it is like tenfold. It is on fire. Like you can just kind of feel the energy of just this diverse group of people who are coming into, into Vegas to kind of help continue supporting some of the needs on the IoT side. Um, we have shot spotter that um, we, we've put in place to kind of being able to see, you know, if, if there's a gunshot, 4th of July, like, you know, we're able to kind of analyze some of that data and say, which are some of the areas where we need to focus our emergency services towards. So we're really trying to leverage a lot of the petabytes of data that we collect from the community and really trying to put that in a visual way where we can make database decisions. And I think that's something uh, we're maturing towards. I think that's one of our goals in the strategic roadmap about how do we become more data centric and what's the best way to be able to tell that story? Because <laughs> it's all about stories in this world. And so how, how do we tell that story more effectively so we can make those decisions? So it's not just, you know, here's what I want to. It's what is the problem that I'm trying to solve? And then what does the desired outcome look like? We have to be very clear on that before we divulge into any kind of smart community initiative. I, I think data centricity is obviously the way forward for governments. One of the biggest changes that I've seen um, over the past few years is governments at every level going into a more proactive posture, less reactive to, to kind of everybody else, but yeah. being more proactive. And I think it, it speaks to that personalization at scale, which you mentioned. But um, I, I want to touch on it because I think one of the key pieces of your strategic roadmap, which I think is one of the more comprehensive ones that I've that I've seen, is really around data. What foundational pieces were you laying down while you were CIO to make data centricity possible to become a more proactive entity for Clark County? The first thing that we've done is um, we, we hired uh, recently the deputy C, um, CIO position. He was formerly Multnomah County CIO who's, who's done a data governance strategy before. And so without really having this strategy in place, you don't really know quite where we're going. So I think we're in the very, very initial stages of setting up, you know, when we collect all of this data, what are we going to do with it and how are we going to present it? Um, so that's the first step. But I come from, I used to work in a in a tech startup long time ago, ages ago, and um, I, I was part of the data visualization team where we would go and, you know, help casinos uh, with where are the hot spots, where are the cold spots. So I think for us as a local government organization, you know, we 
have access to all these locations. How amazing would it be? And this is kind of like the vision. How amazing would it be is when I go to Clark County's website and I'm able to pull up a parcel or a location, I'm able to see which district I'm in, I'm able to see who my elected official is, I'm able to see where I can go and vote, I'm able to see, you know, which different licenses or building permits exist. Like, I think that's kind of like the power of data that we can use to, to leverage and help our constituents with just easy and open access that we that we just need to be able to present in a much more effective manner. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And just being able to put that that data at the, the citizens' fingertips and, and figuring out the best ways to make it applicable is is probably the the first step in that. Um, like I mentioned, I think being being more proactive entities is is one of the bigger changes that I've seen with government. Um, but I'm curious to get your take. I mean, besides the pandemic, What's been some of the biggest changes that you've seen uh, from a government perspective, even globally, um, as CIOs have looked to evolve uh, digital transformations? I have seen this massive shift in mindset, and it has been so fantastic. I mean, COVID, terrible human tragedy, you know, but the only silver lining has been this amazing uh, mentality of reimagining services like you know the 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 old statement of you know this is how we always do things like that's kind of going out the door and it's really about like okay well we used to do things in a certain way and now the world is just changing and shifting so dramatically what can we do to to be close enough to the private sector and mm-hmm. i think that has been amazingly massive and i've seen it for people who have been in government for 30 40 plus years and the the adoption level to be able to accelerate some of this online collaboration accelerate you know being on the cloud the cloud is not a horrible terrible word you know being able to collaborate online without having physical presence in a building unless you absolutely need it i think those are some of the things that i've just seen massively shifting and it's it's refreshing to see. I mean, we even talk about like a hybrid workforce. Like for us, going back to just having being in person five days a week was just unrealistic. We're trying to attract talent that, first of all, it's hard to get talent to come and work for government for the salaries that are offered. And then on top of that, like having to come and, you know, attracting people, especially from the private sector to come and work for us, you have to have a different kind of benefit. And it has to be one, especially with millennials who are, you know, coming to the workforce, we have to give them the values and the purpose and the mission and a normal working structure, which everybody like is, is kind of looking more towards hybrid or remote. So those kinds of things that were just maybe not a standard in government, having a telecommuting policy has been massive. So I think those are the shifts that I'm seeing, which is really going to be a game changer for us in government because people are going to look at us as, yeah, you are trying to innovate. Let me help you innovate. Yeah, I think a lot of governments, I, I usually call it reevaluation. They're all taking a look and reevaluating what really wasn't possible before based on necessity, like we mentioned. I mean, could you imagine? <laughs> A government entity onboarding people remotely uh, yes, two, two yes. years ago, it never would have happened. We they would have, they would have changed your start date. They would have totally. changed your start date. Totally, no, absolutely. Like right now, we onboarded like maybe about twenty percent of our workforce remotely in the last year, which is massive. So you know, really rethinking onboarding, like that's huge. How do you bring people remotely and then have them feel inclusive, like they're part of the environment? I mean, those are some of the things that 
would have never happened two years ago. <laughs> Things like that, do you think it's here to stay? I mean, or do you think as soon as they can get people working in, in an office, onboarding remotely will, will go away in, in government? I would say it depends. I think it really depends on the leadership and it really depends on the type of culture that governments are either trying to build or trying to adapt or trying to change. I think it's really going to be dependent on who's in these amazing, and I call the CIO role, it's really less about technology, it's more of an influential position, right? So having the right people in the leadership position to help influence uh, whether that's your board, whether that's your stakeholders and trying to get to here's what the future looks like. Let's try to get there and maybe take a few risks. Uh, you may learn from some of those. Some of those might be failure, but, but you, you know, those are learning opportunities. I feel like you really need the right people in a leadership position to be able to make some of those changes. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping that we don't go back <laughs> yeah. because going back is kind of like, you know, 10 steps backward. Why would you want to do that? You've already proved that. <laughs> you can provide mission critical services from not being in a physical office as an example. Like why would you want to go back to that? Well, and like you stated earlier, it, it really does just come down to the people. And I think that's an important point. Um, I, I do want to give you a chance to give final thoughts, but before that, I, I want to ask you now that you're, you're going to be in this new role and you're going to be taking a look at governments globally, what do you think governments around the world should be focused on right now? We've talked about a lot of things today, personalization and scale around experience. We talked about security. We talked about a number of things. But what are some of the key pillars that you think governments should be focused on? You know, we are in such um, an amazing reality right now where we're talking about climate and action sustainability. Like that's big right now with, with, the, with the conferences going on internationally. And I think so becoming more digital first to achieve sustainability targets, that's gonna be huge. Uh, reducing the carbon footprint by eliminating the amount of time you know, our citizens and employees spend traveling to meetings that can be virtual, uh, cutting down on paper printouts, like all of these things that make government easy and accessible because nobody wants to actually physically, unless they really want to come into a brick and mortar building. Like I think that's going to be the things that governments in the world should be focused on. It's like, how can we make um, our services super easy to access? I really appreciate the time, Nadia. Any final thoughts you want to leave for the listeners today? Uh, for those who always have been thinking about joining the public sector, I have to say this has been one of the most fulfilling um, careers that I have ever been part of. I mean, the feeling that you get uh, when you are in public service and you're serving the community, like it's uncomparable to anything else. So I would highly recommend if you're thinking about doing a tour of duty, please do it. Like you will be not just serving your community, but you will feel really good at the end of the day because you'll be able to see all the impact that you're making with all the talented folks that are going to be part of it. And thank you for having me, Brian. It's been great to be here. Can I just tell you, Nadia, that of all the things that I've seen that are common across the show and the, the number of government leaders I bring on, what you just said is the most common pattern that I see is government leaders coming in and saying, you really need to do a, a tour in public service. You won't regret it. Absolutely uh, the right the right way for you to end this show. I, I find that really astounding. So thank you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Brian. I mean it. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's surreal. It's been two days since I you know left my <laughs> position, and I still haven't quite gotten over it because because of the level of impact, right? And I think it's yeah. just one of those where anybody who comes in, they like you said, you are not going to regret it. Well, thank you so much for the time again. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.